You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 49. The Lineage. I've been tracing my family tree online. It's not something I've done before, and I'm pretty sure that a large part of any newfound curiosity is down to spending almost a year working on this podcast. I don't think it's unusual to retell a family story confident that it's 100% accurate without any need to check sources or corroborate data. When it's an historical fact relayed as received wisdom, it's all the more disturbing when the plain facts contradict the story. For example, it's often been said that Labour won its landslide 1966 general election victory because of the euphoria surrounding England's thrilling extra-time victory in the World Cup that year. I've even seen it repeated in popular history books as fact. It's a lovely story of how the success of a government depends as much on a feel-good factor as anything to do with the economy or our global standing, combining the world of football heroics with political glory, but for one tiny chink. Labour won that election in March 66, a full four months before Jeff Hurst scored his hat-trick. Historians deal with inventories, parish records, probates, account books, to get the facts. It's here that the truth is recorded by impassive clerks and notaries, with no thought for posterity. And this is why I'm compelled to correct the very first episode of this podcast. Remember how, in October 2022, I related the story of Avrom boarding a boat in Odessa to sail all the way to Glasgow. Well, he did make that journey, but the shipping and immigration manifests tell a different story. It's true that he left Odessa in 1896, but it wasn't on a boat. In fact, we don't hear about him until nearly a year later when he wound up in Hamburg, boarding a steamer, not bound for Glasgow, but for Grimsby in Lincolnshire. From there, he made his way to Scotland and the cigarette factory in Glasgow. What happened during that lost year somewhere between Odessa and Hamburg is anyone's guess. Maybe he wanted to stay a while in Budapest, or perhaps experience the health-giving spas of Baden-Baden. We'll never know. What we do know is that it pours cold water on the offer of work in Glasgow and the events surrounding it. None of this really matters, except to emphasise the point that historians relay history while the rest of us tell stories. The family tree also came up with some answers concerning the extended Diamond family. Those of you who heard the episode detailing the life of my great-grandfather, Morris Diamond, or Zayda Moisha, might remember me lamenting how little I knew about family members with whom I share a last name. Back in my days playing the comedy circuit, one of the hubs of live stand-up was the area surrounding Upper Street in Islington. On a few occasions, after bidding farewell to my fellow performers, I would go to the Upper Street Fish and Chip restaurant 
and join the long Saturday night queue for possibly the best Haddockens chips in London. I remember an elderly lady there behind the counter bantering with a clientele. And now I wish I'd introduced myself, because it turns out that she was my father's cousin, Olga. In addition, I have interacted for the first time with a diamond outside of my immediate family. She's about the same age as me, lives with her family in Tasmania, and has already provided some intriguing perspectives on my own grandfather via her late father, my grandfather's nephew. Tracing my family back has been both instructive and tantalising for the amount of information that is and isn't there. On my mother's side, I can go as far back as Jachna and Zura Lima of Tarnogrod in Poland, who in 1775 bore a son called Joina, my four times great-grandfather. But once I'd exhausted any further attempts to trace backwards, I traced sideways, and some patterns emerged. Mostly, there's a palpable sense of people clawing their way up with each new generation. The people who arrived here from Eastern Europe were, like my cigarette-making great-grandfather, Avrom, largely artisanal. They worked as cabinet makers or tailors or metal workers. The next generation began to make its mark as white-collar workers and small business owners. From here on, we get the first family members to make it to university. Like my great-uncle Julius, who graduated from LSE and rose to become a professor of history. My Danny Dyer moment came on discovering that by marriage, I am very distantly related to royalty via Alexander, the 10th Earl of Hume, whose great-great-grandson, Alec, was the shortest-serving Prime Minister of the modern era. That's until Liz Truss came along and beat all comers for the title last year. But above all, there's an icy chill for anyone Jewish who traces their extended family back beyond the middle of the last century. One of the things about our lot, in common with many Jewish families who arrived at the end of the 19th century, is how insulated we were from the horrors that took place in Europe during the period Jews call the Shoah and everyone calls the Holocaust. I always knew that there were family left behind by my own ancestors who can't have made it beyond the middle of 1945. Indeed, up until 1939, my grandparents and great-grandparents swapped letters and cards with our family in Odessa. And then silence. So it didn't take long to go back a few generations, then right or left, and forwards, for the names and faces to emerge, along with the year and the familiar-sounding places where they died. Auschwitz, Dachau, Belzec. If you haven't heard of Belzec, then don't worry, neither had I. An estimated 600,000 Jews were murdered there between 1942 and 1943. The reason it isn't discussed as much as Auschwitz or Belsen is probably because by the time the Nazis removed all trace of it in 1944, only seven people had somehow survived transportation there. 
In history books, they call it a death camp. But to describe Belzec as any kind of camp is as fatuous as calling an abattoir a farm. There were no dormitories or workshops at Belzec. Anyone who arrived there was simply stripped of all their clothes and belongings before being herded into a gas chamber. So the tiny number of survivors serves perhaps as the place's own appalling legacy. Or as the historian David Silberkleng wrote in his account of what we know about Belzec, it was perhaps the place most representative of the totality and finality of the Nazi plans for the Jews. There's an old Jewish maxim that we die three times. Once when our physical bodies die, once when we are laid to rest, and finally when our name is spoken by the living for the last time. So it's with anger and sorrow that I end this episode by saying the names of my family members, people I never knew of until a week ago, whose lives were cut short for reasons still too horrifying to comprehend. Simon Mayer Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Shalom Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Chaya Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Yitzhak Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Yankil Wolf Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Baruch Boxer, 1942, Belzec. Leicher Freilich, 1942, Auschwitz. Joseph Freilich, 1942, Auschwitz. Sobel Freilich, 1942, Auschwitz. Chaya Frochter, 1942, Belzec. Reisel Kestenbaum, 1942, Belzec. Sophie Silberman, 1942, Belzec. Bernat Freumowitz, 1942, Auschwitz. Simon Windreich, 1942, Belzec. Hannah Gitter Boxer, 1942, Sobibor. Arnold Schlauch, 1942, Belzec. Ida Schlauch, 1942, Sobibor. Max Schloch, 1942, Belzec. Louisa Schloch, 1942, Belzec. Rosa Hertz, 1942, Auschwitz. Semi Schloch, 1942, Auschwitz. Arthur Mayer, 1943, Auschwitz. Ida Sandler, 1943. Auschwitz. Isidore Mayer, 1944, Auschwitz. Bernard Freilich, April the 2nd, 1945, Dachau.